Today on Never Was a Gamer. Half of everything is luck. The other half, auto-aim. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is my exasperated handler, Dimitri. You've died again, 007? Yeah, M constantly in this game is like, How disappointing. Captured? You were captured. If only you were a bit less of a floozy. She literally at one point is like, your next performance review is just going to be terrible. Bond. In many ways, he's a disappointing man. Uh, y- yes. But I don't think this is a disappointing game. Today, <laughs> we're talking about GoldenEye 007 for the N64. This is the first game to kick off our new arc on licensed games. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. I was thinking about it, and it sounds crazy to say, but I don't actually think that I've played a lot of licensed games apart from like some shorter like arcadey sort of like I mean turtles in time yeah like we played some on this show yeah 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 yeah. but like ones that are sort of a longer standalone game I feel like so many of these came out sort of in the period there's like a big licensed games thing I think in the period that I wasn't around for there was always a licensed game thing this is the thing they're so common there's such licensed games and we're not talking about you know, the NFL license, so you can oh, get yeah, your players' yeah, yeah. names in the game. We already, no. Listen, our sports arc is over, all right? <laughs> We're talking about basically games based on movies, TV, other intellectual property. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost inevitable that you've played this because it's such a staple of gaming. I mean, going back to 1976, when Sega released an arcade game called The Fonz. Really? A motorcycle game where you were the Fonz. Because what's cooler than being the Fonz? I guess nothing at the time. (laughs) But, you know, also licensed games have this connection with gaming, but also a little bit of a um, a little bit of a tortured history. Okay. You know, some people blame the E.T. game, you know, the game based on the E.T. movie for causing the video game crash in the 80s. Was it just horrible? Yeah, it was it was horrible. And and, I mean, it it didn't single handedly cause the crash. Sure. Um, But, you know, a lot of people say that that's what brought the end of the Atari was, you know, E.T. being terrible and them mass producing the E.T.s. I mean, they are kind of like buried in some, I think, desert in Nevada or in Arizona. There's just tons of copies of E.T. just buried. Oh, that's not an urban legend? No, that's that's true. They dug some up. Oh, my God. So E.T., you know, E.T.'s all easy. He's all to blame. If you remember back to one of our earliest episodes when we talked about uh, your best friend, Dave Halverson, Mm -hmm. in... You know, I think one of the issues where he was talking about Super Metroid, if you remember, he was complaining about movies taking over games in the sense that every movie that was coming out was getting a crappy game version of it, and he was getting sick of it. Also, Earthworm Jim. Earthworm Jim what? Dave Halverson was was giving Game of the Year to Earthworm Jim, which is was a cartoon first. No, it wasn't. What? No. What? No. Are you one of these people that thinks the Pokemon card game came out before the Pokemon game? No, I know you the know Pokemon game people? came first. No, Earthworm Jim was de- a game that became a cartoon. What? Oh, my God. You don't know anything about Earthworm oh Jim. Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel weird. You know, there's this legacy of licensed games, and they do get a bad rap. And, of course, like there are a ton of them that are really bad. Sure. Uh, but not all were bad. Um, you know, the Capcom Disney games of 
the NES and Super NES era are quite good. I know you're fond of the Aladdin, for example. Yeah, yeah, those those platformers, the Aladdin and the Lion King. I played a fair bit of both of those now that you mention it. Also, this made me realize Kingdom Hearts, <laughs> which is like playing every license at once, <laughs> but continue. And, but, you know, there's just so many of these and... In the 90s, especially, and into the early 2000s, I think the really good ones were few and far between. Often they were seen as just quick cash grabs, especially as we're moving into the 3D era. Um, And there's also a time, you know, when everything was getting a licensed game. I mean, Home Improvement has a game on the Super Nintendo. Skittles has a game on the Xbox. Oh, I know there's one for the 7-Up Spot character, like that mascot. Chester Cheetah. I've seen that at, at Games Done Quick. Yeah. Yeah, Chester Cheetah had a game, right? So it's not even just, you know, popular like action movies getting in on it. It's like it's whatever trash. whatever your corporate mascot is is also, you know, getting in on gaming. And so they they had a really bad reputation for the longest time, but there are some of these gems that are licensed games that nonetheless st- stand out to a lot of people as some of the best games ever made. And uh we're going to be talking about one of them today, which is GoldenEye 007, which you know, I think for a lot of people um, especially in kind of the 3D era is the game that awakened people to the fact that, oh, you know, give a license to a good studio, like Rare mm. in this case, and you can actually get a game that's, you know, great on its own terms, but also does justice to the license. I mean, it helps that this is a game that translates so easily into a genre that exists, right? I mean, maybe. I think that's something we need to talk about. Okay. Whether, you know, the first person shooter is the best way to capture James Bond. Sure. Um but before we get into that, if we just talk about licensed games in general, what is that you're looking for in a licensed game? If you come to a game and you know, you're playing something based on some property you you like or at least know about, are you evaluating those, those games differently than if you're just picking up like a, an original IP? Somewhat. Um, I think I have more patience for it being kind of like fine. I, I think of... So, like, so for you, it's you expect the lower quality. Yes, I do. Oh, no doubt. And the license makes no up for doubt. that? No doubt. So it can. I think like, here's the thing. I really, the worlds, the fictional worlds that I like spending time in, I really like spending time in. And and world and vibe is something that is probably the number one thing that draws or repels me in a lot mm. of pieces of media. And so like, I will follow you into a not that great story that is in a world that I love. I will follow you into a game that is just fine in a world that I love. Um, so I, I think, you know, a lot here is, there is definitely a dependence on how I feel about the, the main IP or, or the, the, whatever this world is. Also, I hate that we talk about like fictional worlds as intellectual property. Now I hate that we think, talk about things in terms of franchises and IP. I understand the reasons, but it just like, I don't know. It's weird that that has been normalized into like how, what the common language is about this sort of idea. Um, Does it just remind you that you're trapped within capitalism? It just feels too much. Art can't exist. <laughs> Nothing is pure except Waluigi. I mean, I guess there's an argument that it's it is it's good because it's not concealing the fact that these are you know Star Wars is like owned by Disney, like the one of the biggest entertainment companies on on Earth, um, and it is a commercial product. So I, I guess it makes sense. It just like it's not how loving a thing or loving a world doesn't feel to me like loving an IP. I mean, we're calling these games licensed games, right? There was yeah, a yeah, yeah. dirty transaction, money changed hands so that, you know, you could get your <laughs> game where you could star as Tim the Toolman Taylor and oh run through. I think he goes into the, the prehistoric thing. era. 
Sure. Like whatever. That's the thing is like something like that, that is such a naked cash grab. It's like that makes sense to talk about as being related to the IP home improvements. Um, I I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive about this. I, I think you're right, though, that there is even from, you know, the design and developer standpoint, you know, a newer relationship with these games where. You know, you did have, and it's not saying that, you know, all the developers, um, you know, the home improvement game didn't care and they just want sure, to make sure, this sure. crash grab. They're probably given a very short time frame to make it. Uh, that's kind of the case in a lot of these games. Like 90% of the people working on these games probably had no choice of what game they were working on. Yeah. Like this had nothing to do with them. And, <laughs> like, and, but, you know, sometimes you get something where the people developing the game are actually really in love with the the world that they're working within and and really want to do it justice and I think that's where you really get the special some of the special games like like in the case of of Goldeneye yeah so yeah I definitely think I have slightly lowered expectations um but not not uh, you know not no expectations I think I think I'm more invested in um feeling something of again the vibe and the spaces and if it's if it's a world that I'm attached to because of characters which is not every world but is some of them then i want to i want to feel the presence of those people in the space i want sort of to take a little a little taster sampling of what was in the original piece of media but i don't really feel like it needs to be too literal about it do you know what i mean like i i neither need it to be a complete side story that doesn't duplicate anything from the main media nor do i need to just like play through the story does that make sense it makes sense. Yeah, I think you're you're driving a hard bargain here for for what the design of the game would be. Yeah, no, I'm saying they can kind of go anywhere go on, on oh, that I- on that spectrum. Like I I think like I want to feel grounded and have some familiar elements, but I'm happy to I mean, this is, yeah, and I think what you picked up on is another kind of development or a movement that we've seen and you know, at least earlier on a lot of the licensed games is literally you're playing through the movie. Right. Maybe with some other scenes, like you know, the Aladdin one has kind of some other scenes that weren't in the movie, which and those are kind of exciting. Versus, okay, let's take this character, these characters, let's take this vibe, and let's either do a side story or something in that world, but that's not mm-hmm. directly the movie. And in the case of something like Goldeneye, you kind of get a bit of both, yeah. Um, which I think we can we can start talking about. So I want to talk about your experience with Goldeneye. Let's start first with your experience with the original, the movie. Sure. Had you had you seen this? When it came out. So, yes, I would have seen it when it came out. However, I remembered literally nothing about it. Like, we had this game in my house as I was a kid, and I I think I remembered more about the game, despite having not spent almost any time with it, than I did about the movie. I mean, the movie came out in 1995, which, you know, we would have been quite young. I do remember seeing it, actually. I remember probably renting it on VHS. Yeah. But, you know, the game came out a few years later, which is one of the, I think, other interesting things about this game is that... You know, it wasn't a tie-in with the movie. I mean, the movie came out before the N64 was out. And so it had such this this long delay between the movie and the game to the point where the game actually came out closer to Tomorrow Never Dies than to Goldeneye. And, you know, in some ways you could think that that might actually hurt the game because there's no, like, where's the enthusiasm? The zeitgeist for- is past. Yeah, sort of? but on the other hand, they, they the expectations were pretty low. Sure. And the developers, <laughs> you know, didn't have to kind of race to meet the release date of the movie. Um, so you don't remember anything about the movie, but uh, we rewatched the movie. We did. It is uh, so much worse than I remembered <laughs> or expected. That is some clowny shit. Oh. It is so dorky. Um, I was absolutely shocked by the intensity and low quality of the puns, <laughs> the corny characters, God. the plot that doesn't start for 20 minutes. 
Wait, what do you mean the plot that doesn't start for 20 minutes? It's like it's so far in before anything that couldn't be cut from this movie happens. Are you telling me they should cut the part where you see Sean Bean get exploded? No, like, I guess you have to have that. This movie starts with him bungee jumping off a dam. Yeah. And then going through the facility. No, I watched it. You would cut that from the movie. I mean, you probably could. No, you couldn't. You need to have, have Trevelyan's death. I don't know. There's just, and then we spend a bunch of time like driving and in a, like it, it's giving you so much time to Xenia on a top. It's just like you want like 15, 20 minutes of her before we get down to business. Here you go. Um, it just like I, who has ever perceived this as cool? It's insane to me that anyone watched this movie and was like, James Bond, so smooth, so cool, such a, such a man. We clearly have different tastes like, than men. He, I mean, no doubt. Um, but like, he's such a... I found him charming. Did you? I did. Oh my God. I still find him charming. I find him... It's not, it's not even, it's not like I'm offended by some of the like 90s-ness of the character, which there definitely is. It's just like, I hate his little jokes. I find they ruin the movie. It like makes him not likable to me as a protagonist. Wow. It's like no spy would say, like it ruins, it just drains. There's like a hole in the bottom of this movie that is James Bond's constant little quips and all the cool of the movie is just constantly dripping I mean, out the I bottom. I think for me, part of what makes him cool is that you know, he's kind of held up against, at least if you think of, you know, love interest for Natalia, Boris, the Alan Cummings character, who is the greasiest, slimiest character maybe ever in a Bond movie. Okay, here's the other problem. I love Alan Cummings. So... Oh, he's great. But this character is just grime. Sure. This like, character just so is, grimy. is both. But like, I'm having such a fun time watching him be awful because it's like my friend Alan Cummings is like playing this gross dude. He's not really my friend, but you know, you like feel some sort of fondness for an actor. I think you see the, you know, because he also does the the puns and the sexual innuendo. It makes sense for him. Yeah, but it's disgusting. Whereas yes. when no, no, James... no, it's disgusting both times. You're wrong about what you're about to say. <laughs> you're wrong about what you're about to say. It's exactly the same. It's just coming out of a guy with extremely good eyebrows and teeth in the James Bond case. Alan Cumming also has good eyebrows and teeth. I just I don't I don't understand the appeal of like. And Pierce Brosnan also, is that his peak, like, physical virility and attractiveness in this in this film? Like, like, oh, I don't, I just, I could not believe how little I liked this movie when we rewatched it. There was about, like, four good scenes that I liked. That was it. Other than that, like, I, I can't believe people look up to this guy as, like, any sort of, like, cool icon. Wow. Yeah. I know. A hot take on Pierce Brosnan. But he was doing his best. I just, I I don't like the script. Okay. So you didn't like the movie, but no. you do have a history with this game you mentioned. It was in your house. Yeah. It was, it was hugely, hugely played in my house, primarily by my brothers. But this is a hundred percent one where like, I think I hopped in on a handful of rounds of multiplayer, probably closer to when we first got the game. Cause I, I do think I remember there being an arc where they clearly got like too good for me to play with them in multiplayer anymore. You know, you're just like not even not even remotely competitive. And so I think that's kind of when I faded out. And I think I might have dabbled a tiny bit in like, oh, let me pop open some random single player chapters like on the easiest difficulty after like they have all been unlocked kind of thing. Because there's like a couple of levels that I think I sort of remember. But mostly I have like 
a handful of weird impressions of different things. Okay, so you, when you were playing, you had some kind of uh, uncanny familiarity come back to you. Yeah, yeah. I definitely remembered a fair bit about like the first level, and there were some things in multiplayer that I definitely remembered. Um, like the golden gun. There's like a handful of odd things like that. Sure. Yeah. And also, I was surprised how quickly the hand feel of how it controls came back to me. Oh, like well, being able on the to N64 look and shoot controller. and everything weirdly. So, okay. So this is something, this is what I was worried about because, you know, I haven't actually picked up this game in probably, I don't know, 15 years, sure. maybe more than that. And, you know, the biggest worry is, okay, it's a first person shooter on the N64. You don't, you don't have dual sticks. You've got your single stick and then kind of the C buttons is your strafe. I was worried that you were going to have... You know, your original Bioshock yes. experience where you're just kind of running into walls. You know, the first time you ever picked up a dual stick controller. Yeah. I was worried that was going to be replicated. Uh, but it, it, like you said, you you kind of moved through it smoothly. And then even when I picked it up, I was kind of surprised how it was. Okay. Like it's not clunky. Obviously, it'd right. be better with dual sticks, but shockingly good for, you know, one stick and some C buttons. Yeah. This is, I think what I wrote down after my first time playing was like, okay, I'm not saying it's good, but I am saying that I got used to it faster than I would have thought. Like there weren't that many times when I really felt like I was fighting it or at odds with it or like not able to do what I wanted to do, which is pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, and you you mentioned this in your opening. One of the reasons it works really well is because it really has a snappy auto aim, mm -hmm. which, you know, God, that helps. <laughs> it, it really does. And, you know, it's it's not, you know, a cheat. It's something that, you know, coexists with the deficits of the controller to actually, you know, give you the experience as maybe you should play it. Like, it doesn't feel like it's too easy. It actually feels like... It's the anti-Silent Hill. It feels like mm. playing like a guy who is good at shooting a gun and mm -hmm. very experienced at shooting a gun, where, like, you're looking at some guy, you're pointed generally in that direction, and your character has the embodied knowledge of how to actually hit that mm -hmm. guy with your bullet. Yeah, I think, you know, they do a really great job. And again... Remember where we are here, right? We're in 1997. These are still the early days of the first-person shooters. Right. First-person shooters are still, as we talked about before, basically called Doom clones by a lot of people. Half-Life is not. It's Half -Life a is glimmer not. in the eye of... That's it. Half-Life <laughs> is not out yet. This game was initially planned as a as a 2D side-scroller. Oh. Um, but, you know, Martin Hollis from Rare, who was the lead on this game, who had just worked on Killer Instinct previously, pushed for it to be a first-person shooter. And, you know, making that was a huge risk and quite experimental at the time, especially because at this time, you know, they knew they were making it for the N64, but they didn't really have final N64 specs. They didn't have a final N64 controller. They oh, built wow. this game using a modified Sega Saturn controller. And one thing that is kind of shocking, but I think also works to the benefit is that this is a, an incredibly small team who made this game, you know, about maybe 10 people who are all very young and inexperienced. Hmm. For a lot of them, this was their first game. A lot of them in interviews, you know, just reference, you know, we didn't know how to really do anything. We didn't really know how to design a game. A lot of it, we were just like looking things up as we needed. But in a sense, you know, because they didn't know all of these entrenched rules of game design, they went and, you know, they unintentionally, you know, broke a bunch of hmm. what was seen as, you know, good game design practice. And I think came up with a lot of really great innovations through it. But, you know, this game went from being a 2D shooter to being an on-rail shooter. One of their biggest pieces of inspiration initially was Sega's Virtua Cop, was, which was, a, you know, a light gun game at the arcade that they'd go and play. And that was, you know, they wanted to emulate that at first. And they even prototyped a version of one of the levels that was on rails, but then quickly decided, OK, we got to take it off rails and let the player actually be Bond. But, you know, yeah, Doom and Virtua Cop were kind of, you know, their big first person shooter influences here. 
And, you know, this game was in development before GoldenEye was released. So uh, the other thing that was exciting for the team is that, you know, they got to go down to the sets. Oh, cool. They got to, you know, they were given set blueprints so they could base the levels off the actual designs. They talk about going to the sets and just taking tons and tons and tons of photos of, of everything so they could, you know, get the textures right of the doors and, and get the the feel and the look of the locations. That's so right. cool. Um, but, you know, as, as I think you notice as you're playing it, the, it's not a one-to-one mapping of the story because it it can't be. It, uh, it takes a little bit of creative license to make sure that James Bond is in places in the game that he's not in the movie. So you yeah. have more to do. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one that jumps out is um, the sequences where you go to Severnaya, like where I don't think in the movie James Bond ever is in the bunker in Severnaya where the GoldenEye missiles are launched from before it is basically blown up he only is there in desolation and for not very long but the movie has lots of scenes there and so you get i think you get two levels actually where you are in severnaya in this game and like running around the tundra I mean, and get getting into the where bunker you're outside and then you have multiple more inside right, right, the right. bunker yeah. there are actually a lot of levels that are kind of in the same spaces and they repeat a little yeah. bit um and i kind of like that this is a little bit back to what i was saying about like i want to get the vibe i want to feel like i'm in the in familiar sort of environments um, and this is the kind of compromise that I just can't get too mad about to be able to make that happen. Mm. It's like, it's fine. They come up with a different reason for before the events of Goldeneye for Bond to have been there and had the whole Trevelyan thing happen. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, right. You, and you get you still get the kind of the classic beginning of the game that you play out when we'll talk about some of those levels later, because I think those are, you know, the opening levels are still some of the best levels of the game or in any game. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then it gets some creative license. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Bond gets captured a lot in these moments. Yeah, there's like there's a number of times when, you know, they clearly want to set up a a chapter in a particular environment. So you have like flimsy premises or like, let's say, heavily streamlined plot elements like, you know, there will be a level where it's like, oh, and Natalia's been kidnapped again. Anyway, you can get in the tank over there and go chase her through town. Oh, we'll talk about it because it's like, okay, let's get in the tank. He gets it. That's from the movie. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, there's like except that there's some of the nuances of of plot stuff. Michelle never got into a tank. We'll get to that. There, we there are multiple opportunities get to get into the tank here, and Michelle just didn't realize you could get into the tank and still finish the levels. One thing I kind of liked about how they handle this sort of stuff: there's very few cutscenes in this game, and they're all like completely in engine. Like they're all just yeah, played but, out within the game and before Half Life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, they do the. The way they're able to make that happen is by like not having that those things voice acted. You know, it's pretty simplistic back and forth dialogue. It's like, you know, a couple of lines of exchange, nothing too fancy. But I still I don't know. I, I like that uh, that commitment to no, like this is this is what the world in the space is and this is how it looks and this is what it's going to do. Like, um, but, you know, there's a couple levels where I think those sorts of cutscenes are integrated really strongly and organically into uh, the level design in a way that I was really impressed by for the period. And so the big question is, did this game make you feel like James Bond? No. (laughs) So I feel strongly about this. Okay. I was... So when I started playing this game, when I still thought I was going to be pretty bad at it and that I wouldn't be able to figure out the controls... At the start, it did kind of make me feel like James Bond because I was being really cautious, edging really carefully around corners, waiting for the optimal moment to take guys out. Um, And then I figured out that I am a slaughterhouse and it became uh, BJ Blazkowicz's 
killing hour for every other level in the in the rest of this game. So, so right, you can stealth through this game. You were playing on a lower difficulty, which yeah. is one of the things that allows you to just kind of go in guns a blazing. But this brings me back to the point I mentioned earlier about whether you know the first person shooter is the best form for what's essentially a spy game. Yeah, um, and you know this is a game that I think in a lot of ways didn't really you know it didn't have the precedent yet, but it's begging for for more of like a stealth element infrastructure in the game. You know, it's begging for a cover system. It's begging for a sneaking system. You know, better ways to integrate spy gadgets. Like this was a big thing. You don't get to use a ton of James, of Bondy tools. So, but for the time though, that was such an innovation. Just even what you can, or even what you do have access to, that felt so special. You Mm -hmm. know, having access to um, his little laser watch, for example. Or, you know, having a camera that you have to use on one level to go and take a picture of something. That I loved. That was one of my favorite moments in the entire game was having to find that missile and just take a picture of it with the camera that's just in your inventory. It's, it's like a cool first person shooter twist idea. It right? makes like so much yeah. sense as an extension of the controls you already mm-hmm. have. But like that was one of the moments when I did feel like a spy, like probably more than anything else. Because um, even some of the other tools, like at the point when you have to copy the golden eye key, you just pick up the golden eye key and then press a button. Mm-hmm. And it just says at the bottom of the screen, copying key. Like you don't, that doesn't, it, like, it's fine. It's fine. But like- You're it, doing like a spy thing, but you don't feel like you're doing a exactly. spy thing. You it, feel like you're shooting. It's like, very yeah. different than like clearing a room and finding a moment to safely like pull mm-hmm. out your camera and snap photos of this illegal thing for the uh, you know opposing cold war nation like it's it's cool it's just cool yeah and it's and i think you know they do a great job with you know within what the parameters of what a first person shooter was in 1997 but what the first person shooter came to be later on when it was when it became more of cover shooter you could see how that would maybe lend itself to this type of game or um i think what we're going to see soon with now who has the bond license which are io interactive who does the Hitman games. Which we both loved. You know, maybe that kind of, you know, third person point of view is actually the optimal Bond, you know, positionality mm-hmm. for, for the types of things that he does. You know, I really do also feel that, you know, as much as I appreciate the the developer's interest in, you know, the set design and the fidelity of all of that, I did feel in some points that like, man, uh, Half-Life is just a year away. And there's some of the stuff in terms of like, um, environmental storytelling mm-hmm. and everything that there it's like there are moments where I could see if this game had come out two years later, like there's so much they would have done with some of these spaces to take in some mm-hmm. of those lessons. So, you know, I think the thing about the gadgets is, is one of those cases where it's hard to, it's hard to put your, it's hard for me to put myself back in like the year that this would have in 1997, as opposed to like, thinking about spy stuff through the lens of some more contemporary games that have so many more tools available. You know what I do really appreciate, though, about this game that did make me feel like a spy is that this game does not hold your hand. Yeah. It doesn't tell you where to go. Like, you get your mission briefing. Sometimes Q will hint at the tech that you have on you, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't... It doesn't explicitly tell you everything you have or how to use it. Sometimes you actually have to, you know, hit pause, go through your inventory to even realize what it is you're equipped with in this level. Um, you know, there are no waypoints in this game. You have to explore. You have to find these things yourself. Yep. Sometimes I think to the game's detriment because it's not communicative enough about whether the thing that you're looking at is the thing you think you're looking for. The biggest one for me was the um, the mainframe that you have to mm. blow up. You have to find six towers of mainframes uh, around where Boris is. And like, 
Oh, right. And looking at them, it's like, I would never have known that that was a mainframe without the assistance of like external sources. So yeah, I agree with you about this sort of knife's edge that this part is on because it's both one of my favorite elements of the game. And also in some cases, I just felt like I didn't have enough information to mm-hmm. to do the thing. Like I'm here, I'm figuring it out, but like you need to tell me what these look like. <laughs> Just some other things that, you know, off the top of my head, they're just remembering, you know, as I was playing this again and watching you play, just remembering all these things that were new for me at the time and that felt so innovative. For example, you know, just having access to the sniper rifle and the the whole concept of headshots. This mm. was I don't know if this was the first game that did that. This was definitely the game that introduced me to that idea that having more accurate aim actually benefits you because it'll kill them in one shot. You can shoot off their hats, which is awesome. That's pretty rad. Yeah, breakable glass, um, you know, destructible environments, bullet holes that actually, you know, stay in the environment. I mean, they disappear after a little bit, but we'll yeah, yeah, but forget fine. about that. Um, also, like shooting alarms and then breaking and turning off were not being able to be yeah. like rung. Um, exploding cardboard boxes. Oh, my God. The card- <laughs> Everything explodes in this game. I what? forgot about that. And, so and, and these cardboard box. I don't know what's in them. They're like wood crates. And there's like... <laughs> They must be hiding some kind of munitions inside All of them. them. We'll have to just imagine. It's, it's so wild. But then, you know, the real thing before we start talking about specific levels that I think this game maybe is best known for and that really makes me feel like a spy and that I wish more games would do, especially first person shooters, was just the mission system, hmm. right? Giving you something to do aside from just shooting, right? Giving you very discreet missions, it was awesome, right? Objectives within within the level. And um, guess what inspired them to do that? Mario 64. Oh, really? Yeah, they played, um, you know, Mario 64. And it was, you know, getting the stars in that game that made them think that, oh, maybe we can have the similar type of thing in, in our shooter where, you know, you're not just going from point A to point B and shooting everything in your way. You actually have to do some exploration. You have to do a little bit of puzzle solving. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, it really, really lent itself to kind of this spy... Um, veneer, right? In those moments, you really do feel like Bond because Bond doesn't just shoot everybody. He also, you know, does things. I also, I I at first had mixed feelings about how that mission system is integrated into the difficulty scaling. Oh yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. So um, how the difficulty works in this game. I mean, the enemies do get harder as you go up in difficulty. Yes, yes. But on higher difficulties, you will have more missions to accomplish before you can finish the level. Yeah. So, you know, on the easiest difficulty, maybe you do one mission, you know, you have kind of one thing to do. And then on the hardest ones, um, you can sometimes have four or five, depending on the level. Yeah, they rain. Yeah, a simple one can be like, get Natalia and escape. Mm-hmm. And then a complex one can also be like, photograph the missile schematics and find find where the yeah, find something the is being scored. Get the, totally. Get this key get open the key. The safe. Yes, exactly. Get blueprints. Yeah. So at first I was like, mm, I don't know if I like the fact that playing on lower difficulties means you're like kind of locked out of content. Um, but I think in the end I'm fine with it. See, this- well, here's the thing. You're not locked out of content. Mm-hmm. You're never locked out of content. You can... On the lowest difficulties, you can accomplish any of those missions. You can go to any of the spaces. You're never gated from a space okay. or from an an object. Like on the level, for example, you know, I think in one of the Severnaya ones, you know, those big open ones, on one of the higher difficulties, you have, kind of have to go into some of these huts that are around that. Oh, you know, yeah, if, yeah, you're, yeah. if you're playing on a lower difficulty level, you don't even have to pay attention to them being there. But if you wanted to and you're exploring, you find the same keys and you can open the same you can open the same safes as you could on the higher difficulties. You don't get credit for it. Sure. 
um, but you can still you can still do it. So you're actually not locked out of any content. Yeah. And I think the thing that like the reason why I ended up being like, I kind of like this and I'm pretty OK with it is because most of the sort of extension activities are the kinds of things that are like Q will speak up in your mission briefing and be like, by the way, if you get the chance, mm-hmm. we'd love a copy of the disc with the software for that tank. See if you can grab it from the lab. You know, it's stuff that doesn't feel like it's mission critical. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. feels like stuff that they are sending you in being like, we have an extra opportunity here to do a handful of stuff that would be really helpful to the cause. And if you can do that, you are a pro. And it's like, okay, that's that's good. Like a player who is better at this game than me will go do that stuff and they deserve to feel that good about what they've done. Like that sort of is logical to me. I, I think I would be more upset about it if I felt like, I mean, A, if they were actually gating off content, uh, not in the way that you just said, and B, if you were missing out on like important story things or like particularly important context sure, stuff, yeah, but yeah. I don't think you usually are. No, I don't think, no, you can, you can kind of, and that's the thing, like even in your mission briefings, even when you're playing on the easiest setting, you get the mission briefings that you would get if you're on the highest difficulty. Mm-hmm. So you're still getting kind of all that story content, all that flavor content, which is sometimes confusing because Q will say, oh, maybe you should do this thing, but then you don't actually have to do it because you're not playing on the hardest difficulty. But um, that's kind of besides the point. But how they actually built this game and the levels of this game is that they designed it for the highest difficulty first and then just started taking things away sure. for the lower difficulty, for the lower difficulty levels. And um, what's interesting when they talk about their level design is they talk about how they had a very backwards approach to developing this game where they built the levels first in accordance with, you know, the the images from the set that they had. Okay. And then they decided how to populate the levels. Whereas in a lot of, you know, in more traditional game design philosophy, you'd come up with, you know, what are you going to do in this level first and then build a level around that? Mm. I actually really like this approach because it gives, I don't know, I find these levels have a real sense of realism. In the sense that, you know, rooms exist that maybe you never need to go into. Like, not every room right. in, in every level serves a purpose. There's a lot of just extra space yes. in, in the world. Especially in the archive. Yeah. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel like there's just this world made for James Bond to go through. True. Where, you know, he's inevitably going to stumble across everything he needs to and nothing else. It also doesn't tuck rewarding little secrets into every <laughs> corner. It also, like, doesn't right. do the... There's not a treasure box behind every waterfall in this game. Yeah, like, I, I, yeah, it feels like there's a real sense of kind of infiltrating these spaces, figuring things out. Sometimes you get lucky and find, you know, a, a cool little secret. and But a lot of times it's, you're just kind of at a dead end and have to That's keep it. exploring, which for a first-person shooter especially is... Uh, I really, I really, really like that about this game. Uh, but I think with that, this is a good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about some of the specific levels. But for now, I'm going to throw to some of this great music in this game because this this game has really good music back so we're not going to do a level by level blow by blow of this game i think instead let's just get into some of your favorite levels and talk about you know what the highlights were about those levels why they really why they really stood out to you sure um so i mean i there's there's a couple that i think were were pretty special for me um i don't know if they will align with the ones that you would identify 
Um, one of the one of my favorite ones was the St. Petersburg Statue Garden mission. Wait, that's so late in the game. That's your first one. That- well, it actually it's it's earlier in the game than it is in the movie. For one thing, it's not that late in the game, and um, yeah, I mean there's there's like other good stuff first, but I just like the reason this stands out to me is because I think this has a bunch of the elements combining well together that are how I would explain to someone what I think I like about this okay, game. Okay, I would like you to explain this to me because this is one of my least favorite levels in the game. So that's wild. Um, so explain what this level is and what is good about it, please. Okay, sure. So the this, this level proceeds over, I'm going to say, a couple of phases. So the first one, you're trying to find your contact and you're walking through this sculpture garden that is in the movie in you know Bond's confrontation with with Trevelyan um and, and in the in the opening credits with that sweet song yeah yeah like, which we learned i didn't know written by bono on the edge you can hear it when you know like you can hear it tina in bono's turner, voice once you know tina turner almost gets rid of that bono stench <laughs> if anyone could it would be her but once you know you know you know Anyway, okay, let me talk about the sculpture garden. So it's this like really sort of misty edge thing where you are surrounded at all these weird angles that are blocking your sight lines and giving your path strange shapes by these like Soviet um, sort of communist era Russia statues at like it. It's very, very eerie. And in, in the in the movie, it's an incredibly tense scene as Bond is walking to this meeting place in the garden. Um, and I felt like, you know, this is a game especially where there are really no, like, waypoints or markers. And I felt like I had to pay so much more attention in this strange space to be able to navigate because you're not going room to room. It's, it's very maze-like. You really are dependent on remembering and noticing the position of specific statues that stand out above the rubble and being able to find your your path, which you know I love wayfinding. So you find this guy. He sends you to the meeting place where you're going to end up meeting you mean the head of Valentine. Valentin? Valentine. It's Valentine. We okay. always, I mean, my, my friends and I, we always thought his name was pronounced Valentin for some reason because we were like, <laughs> You know, in French immersion, that's what that word is to us. But that's not. He's Valentin Zukovsky. Okay. So you meet Valentin, and then he tells you where to go to. Who's a Hagrid. Yes. Right. Uh, A little more clean shaven in this one. Um, And he tells you where to go to meet the head of Yanis, who will turn out to be Trevelyan. And so you go all the way through to the opposite end of this very difficult sculpture garden with like some guys attacking you, but sort of in more of an atmospheric way than a direct threat combat way. You meet Trevelyan. You have this scene where, you know, he rec- he exposes himself to to Bond and all this stuff. And uh, they have that moment of, of heartbreak for Bond. And then Trevelyan says, I'm out of here. You better get back to the front gates because this place is going to blow. And so then you have to reverse course get back to the front of the level you like you have to have learned the space enough to be able to get back there in i think it's under two minutes there's like a set time that you have like you have to move like you cannot get distracted in this and when you get back to the front gate there's a helicopter where they have got um natalia and so then you end up in this fight you have to blow up the helicopter you rescue natalia and then 
Um, you tell her you'll meet her at the front gate, which is just beyond there. But you have to go get the black box from the helicopter that's been thrown back into the maze. You're back in. You're swarmed with guys. You're finding this black box. Again, no markers for where this is. You just have to figure it out. And then by the time you get back to the front gate, um, Natalia has been captured and is being held hostage by the Russians again, who are going to escape with her and lead you into this chase through the city. So I just like this, this seamlessly integrates like a very atmospheric environment with the right amount of, I think, like gameplay difficulty pressure with two impactful and well-integrated cutscenes with you know, multiple evolving complex objectives. Like you don't know from the start that you're going to have to like go back and find this this black box from the helicopter in this maze. It's not like you can hit that on your way mm-hmm. out or stumble into it. Like things have to happen in a particular sequence. I think there's like, you know, there's an explosion in the middle. Like this is just so much happen. Like you feel so much like you are going through a story in this as well as really using, I think, all of your facilities and all of the skills that you have developed in playing earlier levels of this game. Like I felt tested. I felt like I was, you know, succeeding on the strength of my, of my skill and my ability to understand how this world is constructed. Like this for me was such a satisfying gameplay experience. Huh? But I can understand why if you were a little kid, you would just be like, what's up? Like all these statues, like, I don't know where I'm going. This is weird and stressful. It wasn't. I think I just found that level so much bore, more boring compared to the others. Like, oh. <laughs> like I'm shocked. Then it, maybe it's a bit of nostalgia talking, but you know, going back to the second level, the facility, like it's an iconic level. Yeah, yeah. But I think it still holds up. But again, like this might be like what happens when you play this game. You know, after you've played all these other games, sure. You know, and and even after playing Half Life. Whereas, you know, for me in the facility, starting in the vents, first of all, that was just a mind blowing thing that you know that was possible. In oh, this no game, doubt, that's cool. And that you could you know sneak around in the, to that extent, and then immediately you know being above the stall and being able to you know recreate the moment from the film where you know you. In this case, you know, you can shoot the guy who's in the who's in the the opposite stall. You can shoot off his hat. You know, just again, like that moment of oh my god, this is going to let me play out moments from the movie that mm-hmm. I didn't think would be possible to play out in a game. So that, and then you know, sneaking around the space, and then this is again, this is for me, you know, the first level that really introduced you to the different types of missions or the the objectives in the in the level. Where if you're playing on Secret Agent, you know, you have to go find. Dr. Doak, who can be in different places. So you're again, you're exploring and hoping that you'd be, you'll, you know, luck into finding him. And then even just meeting Trevelyan at the end and having to put your minds on the, um, on the gas tanks to blow them up. You know, something that I think in, even today, you know, in other games would be a cutscene. Totally. It's asking you to do that and enact it with this NPC who, you know, who is just kind of there living in the scene, who if you blow up your things too early, he's dead and you fail the mission. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just that combination, you know, really set the tone for me with this game, made me feel like a spy and, and you know, set me up for the fact that this is a this is not like other first person shooters I've played. This isn't Duke Nukem 3D. And I mean, and the other level, too, that is earlier that I don't think you loved as much, but that just resonates with me is the first Severnaya level, the outdoor level. Oh, yeah. Because for me, that was open world. Totally. Yeah. And I, I, this is like one of the clear memories that I had of playing around with this game as a kid was this like open tundra space mm-hmm. where you like, you don't have, incre- it's, it's open, but you don't have incredible sight lines. Right. Like you can't, it just, 
is fuzz after a little bit and trying to figure out where you're going. There's all these little paths that yeah. break off and like, branch and aren't signposted at to, all. To me, and I think I still get some of that feeling when I play it, even though it's a kind of a tiny level now relative to things we, we can play today. But it just feels like, oh, this is an open world first person shooter where, you know, I felt like I could go anywhere. There were all these little nooks and crannies. And, and again, it's like two buildings, you know, two shacks in the distance. But you know, when you're younger, especially What's those shacks, though, exactly. Yeah. You want to know what's in them, and your mind kind of fills and fills in the blanks, and it just feels like this full world um, that that I still find pretty exciting and remarkable playing it today. Uh, so those, yeah, those are some of my early favorites. Um, what what other levels really stood out to you? Um, I love the train level. Oh, that train level is so good. It's so good. So this would be my highlight moment where I felt like a spy. Um, Which is so funny because this is the least spy level because you're literally just funneled down hallways. Like this is well, this is your funneling you down a hallway shooter level. Except that. So I had to shoot out the brakes on each car. Yes. So that makes sense to me. We're like acting on the world to to change it without getting caught. Um, I think for some reason, so you're still mowing down guys in this. Like mm-hmm. you're proceeding up this train. You're leaving a body count of like 100 dudes behind That's, you, this, right? You cannot stealth through this level. Like, but this one, I think it felt less like bullshitty to me because on a long, thin train, guys would be funneled into sure, a narrow yeah. space. Like it feels, so it's not that I believe that one gunman could realistically like pull this off, but it feels in a way more believable. It's more shooting fish in a barrel than like <laughs> being surrounded in a facility where security is running at you from all sides and you're just like pew, 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 like and and killing them all. So and also you get to use your watch laser. Yeah, that is very cool at the end. It's especially with our like we've got old N64 controllers like from when I was a kid. Yeah, They're a little bit busted. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, doing the, you know, using your watch laser on to open up the little grate. It, with the countdown with going, the countdown, you're like, oh, it's come very on. very <laughs> stressful when the control's just not doing what you want it to but do. But it should be stressful. Like, it, it feels right. It feels like, it was, oh, I'm under time pressure. It to- was stressful then, too, but not in this uh, aggravating way with the contro- <laughs> where you're fighting with the controller. I mean, you're always fighting with the controller a little bit. But yeah, I, I also really think this is a, a great level just because it's paced so differently from anything else in the game. Totally. And yeah. it, it comes at a really great moment and it's very dramatic. You know what, though? This, this level is one of... So one of the last things you have to do in this level is bust into this space where Natalia is being held at gunpoint and shoot oh, yeah. the guy who's got her at gunpoint uh, before they can kill her. This is one of this is one of the game's best arguments for why it should have a checkpointing system. Oh yeah, no, yeah. This is this is old school, right? No checkpointing systems, no regenerating health. Yeah. Because you do have to replay the game from the beginning if Natalia gets the killed. The levels are pretty short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not too long. And this one, this one is really not too long, which also, honestly, I like. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a fun level. You're going through a train. That's like a classic, you know, dramatic set for something to happen. You get to see the different train cars. You get to work your way through it. This is just a good, fun level. It's fun to be James Bond on this train. I agree. Any other uh, standouts? Um, yeah, I mean, I really like I like the the map and the expansiveness of the control level, which is like a huge bunker with a whole tech system. Like it's where you encounter Boris. It's got so here's the thing: Boris in this game does not get his comeuppance. Yeah, he's kind of nothing in this game. He he like pulls a gun on you. Yeah, 
and then like fumbles it immediately. And you don't do anything. He just drops. You it. could shoot him, but if you do, Natalia gets pissed at you. Yeah, uh, and then doesn't do what she needs to do in the level, and you have to restart. So he just runs away and disappears. That's my one strike against this level. Yeah, fair enough. I I just I really appreciate how many different spaces I felt like I was in over the course of this level. Like yeah, this this level starts with. You know, Bond and Talia coming up on an elevator with this like weird Muzak yeah. plays. <laughs> like the Bond theme, but in Muzak. Yeah. yeah. Which is very fun. Uh, yeah. And then Natalia has to go and I mean, you clear out some guys. The other annoying part about this is like the Natalia has to go and open this door for you. Yeah. And it takes friggin forever. Yeah. So if you replay this level, you have to wait for her to do that every time. Very much. But apart from that, I, I agree. This is This is a fun level. Yeah, I mean, you ha- this is one where I referred to it earlier. You have to blow up the, the Bane frames. There's a sequence here where you have to protect Natalia while she's hacking and there's guys coming in. Yeah, so what did you think about that sequence? It's fine. I mean, it, so... Because I know you're not a fan <laughs> of, like, the protect or the escort missions. And there are quite a few of, of these where you have to, like, make sure Natalia doesn't get killed. And she's... Sometimes she's, a, like, in actually, in the jungle level for oh, you. Oh, Yeah. Um, which is prior to this, she's coming through you. She she comes with you through the jungle, and that's where you have the Xenia boss fight. And Natalia actually popped off Xenia in your, for you. Yeah, she, I mean, I I I she was great. I got her down to to pretty low <laughs> HP, but yeah, Natalia but, took that bitch out. But in other levels, Natalia is not the most helpful. You know what? I actually didn't have as much trouble with her as I would have thought I would. Okay. She, she some occasionally there was some funny positioning where it was like, I really need you to move. I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. And in this one, this is the classic, you know, Natalia needs to hack something. So there's just, you know, you just have to deal with these waves of enemies yeah. until that timer's over. If they get too close to her, she berates you. She's like, James, I'm trying to hack here. Yeah. Um, Not helpful. I actually don't hate it. I, I think I, I way prefer these sorts of like defend the person while they do mm. a thing missions when they're stationary mm. and I know where they are rather okay, than yeah. when they're mobile and moving around because sure. you will not budge from that spot. So I know where you are. Like it, for me, that's a very different equation than when that person's mobile. I don't know if they're running around. I don't know if I've positioned right to cue them to go to the place I need them to be. Like I'm not trying to manipulate Natalia's AI, right? She just is there and we'll get mad if, a guy is shooting her, which like, that seems pretty fair. If I was just a hacker and I was there with a secret agent and he was letting guys shoot me, I feel like I'd have an attitude about it as well. Um, so I actually didn't hate this implementation. And, you know, it's funny because when we were watching GoldenEye the movie, at one point when Bond was <laughs> running through his space with Natalia, I said out loud, oh, God, are there going to be escort missions in this? <laughs> and you told me to write it down because I, as I now know, the answer is yes. But um, the, the sort of worst of what I have been dreading there never really happened. Like, I, I honestly, I think, especially for the period, so like pretty okay. Yeah. And that, so control is, is nearing the end of the game. I think then you could c- control and then to these caverns, which is just this huge expansive so big, yeah. um, level, which is, is really cool. And then you have the level that maybe best, you know, captures the moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. But is so friggin' annoying, which is the cradle. You know, there were there are a few times in this game where things didn't go according to plan. Um, yeah, we mentioned before how Michelle went through this whole game basically without realizing that you could get in tanks. Correct. Which is, you know, there's one level, so you weren't playing on the difficulty where you had to get into the tank on the runway level early on. Yeah, so there's a tank there, but there's another level called the streets, yeah. which is I think another one of my most hated levels in this game. Partially because I always found the tank so annoying. I don't think I ever realized that you could do this level without uh-huh. 
getting in the tank, noticing there's a tank there. Yeah, which uh, you, you can. You did. I ran through. I killed some guys. I ran away from some other guys, and I found where I had to go, and I got there. It was story over. It was impressive. Thank you. But yeah, nothing was quite as annoying as the cradle. The oh fin- my specifically God. the final battle. I wish I had been counting how many times we collectively had to play through this before we successfully were able to drop down onto that microscopic platform with Trevelyan yeah, so and the thing. get rid of him. If you've seen the film, you know, it ends with this showdown at the cradle where Trevelyan and Bond face up on this you know little platform and ultimately, you know, Trevelyan falls to his death. Yeah. The game wants to recreate this. Sort of. So, you know, you go through the level and the level's fine. You're just kind of chasing Trevelyan around the space. You're, you're, you know, you're just kind of trying to shoot him as much as possible. And once, and you know, he's got all these um, baddies also coming at you. But basically, once he accumulates enough damage, he runs down to this little platform. You need to go down, have your final showdown, which basically means that you can like karate chop him or like shoot him twice and he'll die. Yeah. The thing is that it's like you're like, imagine that you're human sized and then they're dropping you onto like a GameCube disc. Yeah. It's about two square feet of platform for both of you to be standing on. So, And if if he hits you with anything, it does knock you backwards and into you'll the abyss of the sky. Um, there are many times that we, or, you know, that we killed him and then something else shot us and knocked us yep. off. And Another that, one of his guys or whatever. Which, which is strange. Um, yeah, there are many times, you know, where we fall down to the platform, but, but it's, because it's first person, you have to, you're just kind of disoriented. It's very you just weird, kind of yeah. drop. And so by the time you turn around to find out where he is, it's too late and you've been pushed off. Or you, or more likely in the act of turning around, you fall off. Or you are, again, because you have to jump down from this tiny hole to the platform. You just straight miss the platform. That happened a whole bunch of times. You just see it whiz right by you as you fall to your death. It's like, okay, we'll start this all over again. Thank God this level's not too long and not that difficult because we had to do this last sequence so many times. It could be 20 times. Oh, I think it was easy 20 times. Yeah, like a lot of times. But then you kill Trevelyan and then you get to see that uh, sweet cutscene with uh, Bond and Natalia smooching in the jungle. They are smooching. That was definitely a smooch. <laughs> so that's so that's Goldeneye. Any any other thoughts about the, those levels before we talk about the aspect of Goldeneye that we have to talk about, which is the multiplayer? Yeah. Um. So I I like how much this let me live in a lot of the scenes. I at times it started to seem really clowny to me that like Bond gets kidnapped every or gets like not kidnapped captured. And has to like break out of a flimsy cell like eight <laughs> times in this game, like so many times. Um, there is like an an element of that that I was like, maybe we could have found another way to get us into these spaces. But I think that's like a pretty superficial complaint at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this felt this actually in some ways felt better and more atmospheric than the movie because Bond doesn't really talk. <laughs> No, honestly, I'm not being cute about that. Like, you don't have that, like, finger guns bond isn't in this, <laughs> right? He's, like, quiet until there's, like, two things to say in a cutscene. Um, and so we it just removed this whole, like, layer that I didn't like from the movie um, and turned it into a little bit more of a self-serious thing, um, which wasn't totally bad in this case. So yeah, I think I think Very this cool. was a I think this was a good adaptation. 
And I mean, the single player, as good as it is, is often forgotten because the thing that a lot of people remember the most is just the multiplayer of this game, which is, you know, definitely the part of this game that I played the most. This was up there with the wrestling games as the games I played the most with my friends and family in like when I was in grade like seven, eight. Like I played so many matches of James Bond four player death match. It was a mainstay in our house for years also. It's. What's so funny is that it began really as an afterthought, something that was like near the end of the devs wish list, but, you know, was not at all a priority. Had they decided this was that this needed to be an N64 launch game, it wouldn't it would have just been cut. Uh, but thankfully, it wasn't right. And, and you know, the, the goal of this was to really create, you know, the land party experience on the couch. And I sure. think, you know, and I think it really captures that, you know, I, there's just so many nights spent, you know, with three other friends just like laughing and yelling at each other and just playing this for hours and hours and hours. I mean, you get access to so many maps, mm-hmm. so many characters and characters in the game, as well as other characters from the Bond universe. Um, you've got Jaws and Odd Job, who are really interesting in that one is kind of, you know, if you're a player who needs a little more help, maybe you play Odd Job, who's shorter and is much harder to hit. Okay. And if you're a better player, maybe you get stuck with Jaws because he is huge and easier <laughs> to hit. Or so there's like that kind of like, um, you know, balancing built into the characters you can pick. You've got other Bond villains in the game. Um, one thing I really remember from this time is that there was, I think it was an EGM as well, that there was this rumor that in the multiplayer through a code, you could unlock all the other like canonical bonds like you get unlock oh. like yeah like Sean Connery bond um or Timothy Dalton bond you know and and this was the, this was like my shenglong okay you're like we will find it cuz it was bullshit sure it was another joke but this was on the internet in magazines like as oh, a, man. you know people trying to figure out if this was real and i guess you know there was a screenshot they had that made it seem real and i guess at one point that was the goal and they actually had these bonds in the game because Rare had the license to like the Bond universe in general. So at one point, all these characters were going to be in the game in multiplayer. You could pick whatever Bond you wanted. And then the story is that somebody from, I think, Warner Brothers saw it and was like, oh, we don't, you don't have the license to their likenesses. Oh. And so they had to take them out. But the rumor, the rumor persisted. And uh, that was like, (laughs) of, I think of like my youth, that was like the big video game rumor. Okay. Yeah. So we played a few rounds of, of the multiplayer. Obviously, we didn't have, you know, f- the four-player yeah. experience. It wasn't the full thing. But what did you think of of the taste that you got of the of the Bond multiplayer? Uh, it was pretty fun. It was pretty tense. I, um, I, I agree. I, I had a lot of fun, even just playing, you know, one-on-one. I think it was still really fun. I did. I think playing one-on-one, though, did make me appreciate more how much... Like, it made me, I think, understand how much more fun it would be to play with four people. Mm-hmm. Because we definitely would get in cycles where, like one of us had all of our armor and all of our gear and the other person would just be stuck in a death cycle of like, whereas if there were more people to focus on, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't just be like one person on top, one person just getting like immediately creamed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was still really fun. I mean, I also, I was shocked how much of this came back to me, Hmm. including like, um, as I said earlier, the golden gun, uh, some of the pathways and like the vent system and stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of really good places to sneak around, like kind of like little hidden rooms in in a lot of the on a lot of the maps. Some of the secrets, yeah, like places where you can push through walls yeah, and be yeah. like in behind. Yeah, um, or sometimes like I would hear you shooting at me, but like wouldn't be able to see where you were coming from, and then would like vaguely remember like, oh, I think over there there's like a oh, thing you where you can get in. You didn't look at my screen. 
Oh, I looked at your screen constantly. <laughs> but like if you're just in a passage, it that's not really giving me a ton of information yeah. about how to One get One of the greatest going. N64 strats, right? It's just like looking at your opponent's screen, which yeah, is obviously. part of the game. What was it called? There was a word for it. Just looking at the screen. I think we called it screen sniping in my house. Oh, you had a you had a name? That I might I I didn't know if that was like a broader term or if that was like just our little provincial like our house. That's what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like it it, it's something so, I mean, that can only happen, right, on these split screen games, but it was part of the strategy. And, you know, it was part of the strategy knowing that other people would probably be looking at your screen. Right. So trying to maneuver in ways where they wouldn't really be able to tell where you are, I, you know, it becomes part of the part <laughs> of the game. Facing a wall and strafing sideways. <laughs> yeah, because like at a certain point, you know, in some of the levels, you can you can like hide an event and shoot out of it. But, you know, you're not really, you're not fooling anybody because people just look on your screen and know what vent you're in so they can right. just come for you. I don't know how you could not look at other people's screens. And no, yeah. No, it's, those it's, tiny TVs we it, were playing on back it, in the day. It's part of the game. Yeah. Just lean into it. The other thing that I want to mention, though, that I forgot about that needs to be in every multiplayer game, the awards at the end. Oh, yeah. That was so fun. I forgot about these and, and it came back to me how intense we were about them. Like... So when we'd play, we would care about winning the match. But if you won and got like the most cowardly award, it's like you didn't win <laughs> because you didn't. Yeah, because the game told you that you were a shitty player. You didn't like live to get a, a scoundrels award. Like I kind of love getting the like most cowardly <laughs> or like any of those sorts of like ones that are kind of negging you. <laughs> Yeah, like there's certain like there's, I want to win like a I want to win like a coward. Yeah, but there's there's so many awards that are yeah, and it's just to see who gets what. I and it's, yeah, and it's not it's not like you're gonna see the same awards exactly every time. Like there, there's a little bit of variation, isn't there? Oh yeah, there's there's like you know, like almost twenty different awards. That yeah, you can get which means it's really calling out your behavior. Yeah, like, like there, I remember it's like there's most you honorable, feel targeted, <laughs> most dishonorable. Yeah. I know there's a cowardly one. Um, Love to win with most dishonorable. There's like a professional, like the most professional. I know there's one like where's the armor if you just didn't get everything. Yeah, yeah, armor, yeah. You just didn't get armor. That's so fun. Yeah, I, I yeah, it just adds a different flavor because you kind of get it's like this commentary on your match after you've played like it. That is that is an element designed by somebody who understands the dynamic of like four people on a couch. Like shit talking each other and playing this exactly. game for loops and loops and loops. And then the like, game shit talks you sometimes. Yeah. Or, you know, reinforces. Gives you fodder it. to yeah. like pile on people. And yeah. I remember because you can, when you get to the results screen, you can like click A past it pretty fast. And I, I know sometimes when we'd miss it, we were just so upset. Oh, yeah. Because we wanted yeah, to see yeah. everybody's award. Like it was, it was part of the game was seeing what every, what everybody's award was. The other thing that I remember very fondly about the multiplayer was playing with um, remote mines only or proximity mines, <laughs> but we really liked remote mines because that's where you really want to use the combination of sneaky placement and then staring on your opponent's screen so you know when to detonate them. Right. Like, but you know, we'd make our own games with those. We used to do because the caverns is one of the maps, which is cavernous as a yep. level. It's just a huge level. And one of the things we do on that map and and a bunch of others until we realized it didn't work is that one of us would go. So the other person would leave the room. So mm -hmm. this was like a, a game that we invented. In real life, you would leave the room. Yeah. So one okay, person would leave the room or gone. close their eyes. Yeah. And the other player would go and hide remote mines all around the map, like just sticking them on things, you know, 10 of them, say. And then the, the second player would have to come back and try to find them all and shoot them. Oh, okay. And like, it was like a hide and seek game. Sure. What we didn't realize, though, is that after a certain amount of time elapsed, they just disappeared. <laughs> from the environment it's just like 20 minutes later your, your little brother still wandering around the so our game didn't quite work 
but it was fun in theory. Yes. Just the fact that you feel like you can apply that creativity and like make up new ways to to fool around with the modes is like very fun. Yeah, I don't I don't know what it is because like I don't play multiplayer shooters now. Oh, but no. there was something about going back into Goldeneye that was just it makes you feel playful. Yeah, there is there is like a less serious party game vibe to it in a way that like I don't know that I a hundred percent have perceived in like tons of other competitive shooters. Although maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because like we were young, we were playing it and like it's nostalgia, but also none of us were like that. Right. My friends and I weren't like, we were competitive, but not that competitive. Like it was, it was really just kind of goofing around and maybe that's part of it. Why it had that party game vibe is because we brought it to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, I think there's something about like the weapons and then, and the permutations that you can have. And even even the characters you can have that, that lend a a lightheartedness to it. The secrets, the different modes. Like, yeah, I do remember playing some rounds with slaps only. Exactly. You know, where like the only way to win is by like sneaking up on your opponent and slapping them. Um, Yeah. Golden gun is like so dominant if you get it. But again, it it could be like a great equalizer. Yeah. Right. That if you're. Yeah. Yeah, it's high risk, high reward. Um, if you're not the best player, but you get the golden gun, yep. then you have as good a chance as yeah. anybody to win the game. <laughs> yeah, it does it does have the um most at least usually I think there's like an anything can happenness that is is party game friendly, I mm. think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, case in point, I played multiplayer with my brothers for probably way longer than I would have been able to in a lot of other games because like every once in a while, some wild stuff happened and I won, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's inherently fun. Yeah. Um, so before your final thoughts, I have three quick tidbits to give you. Oh, just things that I think you might just kind of be like curious little anecdotes with this game that you might find entertaining. OK, so. One, one idea that this team had initially. So you know how the N64 has, you know, that hole in the back of the controller for the rumble pack to go in? Mm -hmm. One idea that um, they at least joked about, considered doing, was that you would reload your gun by slamming the rumble pack into the back (laughs) of the controller. (laughs) Obviously a terrible idea. They figured out it was a terrible idea pretty quickly. You want to break your controller? Or it's just so cumbersome to like reload. but. There's something there, though. Fun that they even had that idea. Yeah, yeah. Right, to try to add some kind yeah. of tactile experience. Two, um, the most hated gun in the game, which is the Club, is named after somebody who helped out a lot with this game. Ken Lobb, your your favorite guy oh. from the N64 video, swooping his hair back, calling in those kids to come oh play God. Super Mario 64. So, so what did he do on for? What did he do for them? He, I think he worked a bit on the game. He might have been one of the producers on the game. Okay. I don't know. He wasn't like a core team member, but he definitely was like the Nintendo, like Nintendo sent him to kind of make sure that things were were running well. Club is a good name for a gun. And uh, they had initially called it, I think, the Spider, but that is a licensed name of a gun. Okay. So they had to change it. And it's the club. And they joke that, you know, they gave him the name of the gun that is the least effective. It just, <laughs> it has the worst aim and the least, does the least amount of damage. Like it's the most hated, but <laughs> it's named after, it's named after your boy. All right. And then... I think the funniest anecdote I found about this is that, you know, this is, especially for, you know, 97 Nintendo, this is a pretty violent game for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're shooting people in the head, you're seeing blood splotches on their head. And so the story is, and this might be apocryphal because it's almost too bizarre, um, but that Miyamoto thought that this was too violent for a Nintendo game. So he suggested that the ending would be that James Bond would be in a hospital shaking hands with all the enemies that he shot oh who were recovering. <laughs> It turns out I survived. <laughs> and shaking their hands. 
good game, James. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons they said that, you know, at the end credits, they do say, you know, they they present all of the characters as actors in their game. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. James Bond as 007 right, or whatever, right. you know, and, and I think they Natalia do that. as the hacker. It's like, yeah, yeah we, yes. <laughs> I think, you know, that's a way to show that this is fictionalized. It's all in good fun here. Everybody here is playing a role. Nobody's that's actually so dead. That's really So really Miyamoto funny. doesn't get offended. But yeah, that, that's Goldeneye. Do you have any final thoughts? I have only one. One annoying tidbit came through from the original script of Goldeneye, and that's in the level control. Natalia will not stop buttering you up for the entire <laughs> time. You clear out, you shoot like two guys in this open space with no real threat, and she's like, you are magnificent, James. And like every time you encounter her again, she has some new little line for you. It's like, I get it. We're going to sleep together at the end of this. It's done. You can stop. It's too much. It's too much. It's like the one element of the like weird corniness of the of the movies, like schmoozy stuff that like made it into this. It's so weird to me that it's in Natalia's voice. They're like, we have to have her still fawning over Bond. That's so important. We have to get it in. It and like, a- it, they, they're so sparing with where they put dialogue. They're so sparing <laughs> with it. But they go way out of their way to have Natalia multiple times tell you how great you are over the course of this. It's part of the movies. It's part of the Bond experience. I you guess. You the bad with the good. I guess. guess. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just sorry you had to deal with that. No, it's it, no, look, it's fine. I'm sorry it's fine. Didn't, it didn't make you feel like a sexy man. I don't know what would. (laughs) 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 All right. I think that's going to do it for us. Um, As always, if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this show on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, You can find more details about the show and about this episode at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time we play... Something a bit different. This is an adventure game. So it's going to be our first point-and-click adventure. A licensed game. The Blade Runner point-and-click adventure game. It's, I think, a little hidden gem. I don't know. You know, this isn't in the pantheon of games that everybody always cites as, you know, some of the greatest games of all time. But I think this is a terrific game. A terrific game that works well with its license. That works well with the form of the point-and-click. I just want to play a point-and-click. Let's do it. Great, so we'll be off to play Blade Runner, and we'll see you next time after we've played Blade Runner, because coming to terms with the fact that all moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain, is an essential part of being a gamer.